Hi, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. Today is Friday, March 6th. 2020. So glad you could tune in today. Really happy to welcome back to the program today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Andrew Specht. And we're going to be talking today about pets that are maybe sick, having a wellness checkup, and are advised to get a urine sample. Well, why? Why a urine sample? We're going to find out about what can be learned from urine samples and how they can complement blood work. Animal Airwaves Live is coming up after this news from NPR. Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. Today is Friday, March 6th, 2020. Happy you've tuned in on this Friday afternoon. And I'm glad to welcome back to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Andrew Specht, who's been here a whole bunch of times before. And today we're going to talk a little bit about urine samples. Now, those of you who have taken a pet to the veterinarian, either because there is some kind of complaint that your pet is registering that you are trying to get addressed, or maybe because you're just going in for a well visit, as we do uh, every year, maybe your veterinarian has suggested collecting some samples, maybe of blood, maybe of urine. We're going to find out about what some of these samples can tell veterinarians. So welcome back to the program, Dr. Specht. I'm really glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We think of medical samples either when we go to the doctors ourselves or when we take our pets as, I guess, probably being a, a thing, you know, that, that they want from us or from our pets. And maybe we don't give a lot of thought as to what that can tell veterinarians or physicians. But I imagine it must be important information. Yeah, there's actually a lot of different information we can get from those different samples, um, particularly in pets where we don't always have the luxury of asking them how they feel or if there are any symptoms we're relying on our observations. And so we get a lot of clues from the blood work and then complementary information from the urine samples that we collect. So we often do them together. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. That is to say that we are able to communicate to our physicians how we feel and whether or not we have some problem. And we may or may not have an idea of what it is that we're feeling and why we're feeling it. But our pets aren't able to communicate this to us at all. We might notice that their behavior is a little bit off, but we don't know how they're feeling inside. And they don't have any ability to communicate verbally to us what it is exactly that they're feeling. But the samples that they provide can give you sort of empirical evidence for things that can't be communicated. Yeah, most of the samples we get are going to, they're going to be clues that help us localize where a problem might be. So if someone notices that their cat is sleepier than normal or kind of hiding or their dog just isn't as energetic, we can do a physical exam, we can ask lots of questions, and then we can use those blood samples to sort of localize and say, is there something here that is a hint about liver problems or kidney problems or something else? And we can use the urine to kind of characterize those problems further, particularly with the urinary tract, but it, but it tells us a lot of other information as well. Now, 
I know how I would give a urine sample if I were having to go to the doctor and give one. What about our pets? I mean, it's probably not uh, as, as straightforward as we would hope. Uh, sometimes it's sort of the same as what people think about. So there is, uh, it, for some of the information we're looking for, we can actually have them give, uh, particularly for dogs. Um, people might have had to do this where they go outside and and wait patiently and, and try to sneak a cup or a bowl or something under to try to get a free catch urine sample. That's what we would call that if you got a voided sample. Uh, ideally, sort of in the middle of the, the stream, you sneak a, a container in and, and collect a sample. But we do have other ways. So cats, that would obviously be almost impossible. So sometimes if we're trying to catch voided samples for cats, we will do something like put little plastic beads in their litter box that wouldn't absorb the urine, so non-clumping material, and then we could suction that up with a syringe. Or for a lot of our patients, we actually use a technique called cystocentesis, um, which basically means we use a needle and syringe, and we that sounds a bit scary, um, but it's the same kind of needle we would use for a blood draw. We just are putting it directly into the bladder, uh, withdrawing a urine sample, and then using that for our analysis. And the, the benefit there particularly is that that is, is not going through the, the rest of the lower tract, and so it is as close as we're going to get to a clean or sterile sample from our patients. I think I understand what you're saying there. It may be that if you're collecting a urine sample in a, what you'd call a free catch that it has then passed through the urethra and exited the body and anything along the way that might have compromised the integrity of the sample uh, will affect it. So if you are able to inject a syringe directly into the bladder, you get it before it has to exit the body. Yeah. So particularly if we're looking for things like urinary tract infections, um, we want to make sure that there's not the chance of contamination um, as it's coming out, or even even when we're collecting it. If, if you're trying to chase your dog around, it's fairly easy to get dirt or grass or other things from the outside there. Um, and so the, the cysto sample is by far our cleanest sample for checking for things like bacteria. Having said that, we don't always need to do that. Um, it is generally pretty well tolerated. So sometimes people hear that and they get very nervous that that's going to be uncomfortable or painful. Most of our dogs and cats tolerate that procedure very well. Um, but we do have to be a little careful. They have to be good about it. We don't want to force them to, to go through that procedure. Um, but if they're, if they're well-behaved and tolerant, it often is as easy or easier than a blood draw for them. Now, it does require that a needle of sufficient length be inserted like through some of this animal's tissue and then into the bladder right? The bladder is where you get it from? That's where we get it from. Okay. So it, it, that probably, you feel a bit of a pinch, I imagine, when that happens. Uh, how much tissue do you have to go through? Uh, it's actually not very much. So the bladder in most of our patients, it's, it's very easy to feel if it has, if it's full at all. Um, and so if they're, for most of our patients, we can palpate their abdomen and we can feel the bladder right through the body wall. So we basically have to go through the skin and the tissue right below it. And then the first thing we hit after that is going to be the bladder. Um, and so the majority of the time, we're just kind of holding it in one hand through the through the body wall and, and poking it with the other. Um, there are times where if they're kind of extra fat uh, or there's a lot of tissue to go through, we might also use something like an ultrasound machine to tell exactly where to aim so we don't hit something else if we can't feel it really, really well. Might some sedation or something be employed if an animal is a, is a bit anxious about this? Yeah. Most of the time, we don't need sedation for this procedure. I would say the vast majority of the time, they're very tolerant of it. Um, if it is 
truly important for their disease process, that we get a urine sample from the bladder and they are not cooperating, then we might use sedation. Um, a lot of times in those cases, though, if, if it's just something we're doing for screening, we probably wouldn't, we, we would be potentially Anytime we're using sedation, it's a, it's a very low risk, but there's some risk when you use those drugs and there's some effects of those. And so we generally would try to avoid it if we could. The needle that you use, you say, is not much bigger than you would use to get blood, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, urine is not an especially viscous material, so I don't see why you would need to use an especially big needle. Uh, how much of the fluid do you need to extract? Not a lot. We usually will... That for it depends a little bit on the tests that we're doing. Most of the time, we just need a, a few milliliters. So it, that's kind of our, what our measurement is. If you're thinking about a milliliter, um, a tablespoon might be an amount most people are familiar with. That's five milliliters. And we're usually looking at five or six milliliters for a really good uh, urine sample. So about a tablespoon's worth. Okay. That's not so bad. That means that, you know, this doesn't, this is, is like a, a one injection and done sort of thing. There's not going to be multiple injections in order to like get the sample that you need. It's usually, yep, we're going to insert once, draw our sample, and be done. Are there any potential drawbacks from using this method other than the slight discomfort that the animal might feel? That's really the main one. Um, like, uh, kind of like blood draws, there's always going to be very rare cases where there could be other problems. You can minimize those by being very sure about where the bladder is, either by holding it in your hand or by using ultrasound. Probably the biggest risk would be if you didn't know exactly where it was and, and weren't visualizing it, you could put the needle in the wrong place. Um, in very rare cases, there have been times when people have hit blood vessels or other organs um, and had some bleeding, uh, or there's even very, very rare case reports where because you're putting a needle into the bladder, you're leaving a needle-sized hole. And that all, I would say, sounds scary. It almost never is. The bladder has a pretty thick wall and it's usually not going to leak. Um, but if it's already very diseased, so if you have a case where it's been extra stretched because it was obstructed or it's had major disease problems, then you can worry a little bit about the needle going through that disease tissue. But you would probably know ahead of time whether or not you were dealing with an animal that had some kind of condition like that. Yeah, you would almost always know that. With this kind of extraction, um, you say it's not too much. I mean, um, that, you know, tablespoon size amount doesn't seem like a lot. Then you are able to get that into your syringe, and then the animal uh, can kind of continue with whatever exam is it's getting, right? This is, this is probably mm -hmm. part of a larger exam a lot of the times, right? Yeah, it's usually part of our... So if we're doing either... A wellness exam for an older patient or we have a patient with a disease and we're just trying to get clues, most of the time we're going to combine our blood tests and our urine tests together. And they really complement each other. Um, it's hard to, to get all of the value that you need from a blood test without having the urine at the same time. Is the animal need to be shaved in order to see the belly in order to do this? Uh, no, we usually don't shave them, but we will put a little alcohol on and, and kind of move the hair out of the way so it doesn't Connect, so that you're not touching the hair with the needle. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So this, uh, you know, kind of syringe extraction um, from the bladder or a free catch are a couple ways that you can get it. Or maybe, you know, like you mentioned, uh, for cats, there there's another way to do it. The 
The important thing though here is that you get the sample because then the sample is able to clue you in on some of the different problems that an animal might have. We still got a lot to talk about in terms of what some of those problems could be and and the many reasons that I imagine that an animal uh, might need to have some of these samples taken, including for blood, but today specifically as we're talking about urine. I want to uh, remind everybody that you're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back right after this. Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. Today is March 6, 2020. Glad to have you along for this live episode today. My guest is Dr. Andrew Speck from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, and we're talking about why an animal might need to have a urine sample collected and what can be learned from such a sample. And we left off having just found out about how doctors, veterinarians can collect these samples and by doing so, uh, help figure out ways to maybe diagnose and and even prevent disease. So uh, Dr. Specht, the list of conditions that an animal might be experiencing that would benefit from having a urine sample collected is probably extensive. Let's start off with some of the the more common ones. Okay. Yeah. I also, I realized, I think I said tablespoon before, and I actually meant to say teaspoon. So I should clarify, it's even a smaller amount than we were talking oh, about. that's um, super. But as far as the kinds of conditions, probably some of the more obvious ones people might be familiar with would be, um, for instance, a disease like diabetes. We might find extra sugar in the urine, or with kidney disease, we might find that the urine's not able to concentrate as much as normal, or that there's extra protein in the urine. Uh, Urine samples can tell us about things like infections. Uh, They can tell us about some other metabolic problems. We can sometimes figure out why certain electrolytes are off or why there's an acid-base problem by looking at the urine. So there's a wide variety of things we're actually looking at with it. And the different organ systems that might come into play in all of this. I mean, you mentioned the liver and the kidneys. The kidneys seem pretty obvious to me, right? I mean, I don't, uh, again, know a lot about science and the body, uh, but in the course of doing the show, I've learned for sure that kidneys are vitally important. Yeah, and they're going to be one of the most obvious places that we're concerned about urine samples from. The kidneys are going to be where that urine is produced. So all all the urine is going to start its journey from the kidneys, where that's where the um, blood is going to be filtered to to produce the initial urine. That's where it's going to be manipulated. Certain things are going to be taken back into the bloodstream. Others are going to be um, continue down to the bladder. Um, but the urine is also then going to be affected by things that are happening in the bladder or other parts of the urinary tract. And even before the blood gets filtered by the kidney, there might be alterations in the blood itself from those other organs that get reflected in what is filtered in the kidney. Um, Some of the ability of the kidney to take substances back out of urine after it's initially filtered are affected by changes from those other organs as well. So that's an example where liver disease, for instance, can affect a, a different kind of blood marker, which also affects how urine is produced. Okay. This, this, I think now maybe at least I feel like I would benefit from just a, a brief kind of overview of, of how the kidneys function. And we've got two kidneys. Animals also have two kidneys, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And they take some material and filter it, essentially? Yeah, essentially the blood is going to go the, – 
the basic version would be the blood is going to go through what essentially is just a filter. Um, and so big things are going to be kept back in the bloodstream and small things, including the liquid, so the the fluid part of the blood and electrolytes and small proteins or small substances all pass through that filter. And then they go through this part of the kidney. There's a whole bunch of these called nephrons, so these individual little tube systems. And in those tube systems, the kidney then has the ability to take back some of the things that it might still want. So if there's a little bit of sugar that gets lost, it might take that back, um, but it can only take back some of that. Um, if there's, there, we lose sodium that way, and so the kidney is gonna resorb some of that sodium so we don't lose it all. And potassium, a lot of the electrolytes we're familiar with are gonna be managed, they're gonna kind of be filtered and taken back and put back into the urine, and that's how we manipulate our overall levels for the most part is by handling those in the kidney. And the urine itself then is full of the different waste products that the that the kidneys have filtered out. Yeah, and so a lot of those waste products are going to be initially filtered, but then we don't want to take those back. So there's no mechanism then to to suck them back from the urine. We let them go out into the bladder and out of the body. Right. So the urine can give you an idea of what some of these waste products are. Uh, to some degree, yep. It also, one of the things we're looking at is when the kidneys aren't working, this is where the blood work and urine together can really help us, is if the kidneys aren't working, then they're not filtering as much. And so our blood test might say, you have a lot of extra waste products or, or things that should be filtered by kidneys here. Um, and then one of the things we really need to do almost first is look at the urine because one of the main reasons for that might be that if you're trying to conserve water, if we're dehydrated, then we're going to filter less in general and try to conserve water. And if you get really dehydrated, you can have those waste products build up just because you're trying not to make more urine. Um, and then the urine is going to be really concentrated. So it's not going to have much water in it. It's going to have a lot of other things, but but very little water. If it's not filtering those products because of kidney disease, it'll probably actually be fairly, not necessarily dilute, but not concentrated. So instead of retaining water, we're going to lose a bunch of water, but not lose those waste products that we're trying to get rid of. So then those stay in the blood? Yeah. I see. So really, like, a, people should know then that a blood test is definitely not a be-all, end-all for tests uh, in conjunction with the urine these two can tell you a lot. Right. They really have to go together. There, there's a lot of things that we can't, we can't really make interpretations of unless we have those two pieces of information together. So when you are doing some of these tests, you're usually taking urine and blood at the same time. We're usually trying to get them at the same time, yes. Because, I mean, having them from different times is not really a good snapshot of what's going on. Right. It's harder to interpret either one without the other at the same time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the liver is also at play here in, to, in, to some degree, right? I mean, to the, some degree. The urine can tell you some things that are going on in the liver? Yep. And sometimes that can be hard to sort out. It's a little bit less obvious than the kidney, um, but there are ways in which the liver is going to impact it. So sometimes we will see... Uh, if the if the liver's not working, it might be having a hard time metabolizing the or taking metabolites. So protein breakdown products can get turned 
from ammonia into a, something called urea nitrogen. And then that's one of the things that builds up if you have kidney problems, but it can also, if you don't have enough of that, if the liver can't convert that, you can see falsely low values or that can affect how well the urine concentrates. Um, we can also see sometimes if the, ur if the liver is, if there's an energy deficit, it might be making something called ketones. And if there's a lot of those, that can also happen with diseases like diabetes, but liver disease or diabetes can produce those those ketones, and those can come out in the urine, and that's one of the ways we detect them. Remind me again what the liver does. It's another filter? It has some filter properties, but it, so it's largely taking blood that's coming. It does a lot of things, and that's yeah. probably a whole extra show. Yeah. Um, but it one of the main functions is going to take all of the blood that's coming from the intestines, and it's going to... Um, help with metabolism and energy from from all everything we eat and both the good parts and the waste products have to go through the liver to get really get processed before they get dealt with elsewhere um, so one of its major functions is just dealing with the byproducts of digestion and, and energy and metabolism it has a lot of other uh, uh, functions in terms of uh, production of different hormones or, or manipulating other things in the body. But that's probably one of the main things is, is dealing with the food that we eat. I, are, there, are there substances in healthy urine that give you an indicator as to how the liver and the kidneys are functioning? For the most part, the tests that we're doing are going to be looking for things that would be present mostly when they're abnormal. So, so typically, no, actually. We're often looking for the absence of things when we're trying to say, and it, it doesn't prove that the liver is healthy or that the kidneys are healthy. There, there can be a fair amount of damage before we're able to detect it. Um, but largely, our urine tests are looking for the absence of things. So we're, we are looking at that concentration. We're also looking for things like the ketones or glucose or or how the acid base ba balances or proteins. And we're mostly looking for not, so an, a, a great test would be a good concentrated urine with none of those things present. This reminds me that we've had discussions before in which I have learned that the kidneys can actually be quite compromised before there are significant signs of trouble. Yeah, and yep, yeah, that's true. We can lose... As a rough estimate, um, our tests are probably not able to really pick up kidney disease. Uh, our blood and urine tests are probably not able to pick up kidney disease until we've lost almost two-thirds of the function. And then the first thing we're going to see is that they're not able to conserve water as well as they would. Um, before, When we start to actually get those blood products build up, so the, we can find that in urine at about two-thirds of our, of our functional loss. Our first blood test shows up closer to 75%. Um, so there's some newer tests that can show it a little earlier, but we actually see changes in the urine before we see changes in the blood. Meaning that like only a third or 25% of function is left? Yes. That is alarming. That is quite alarming. Luckily, we can do pretty well with just that. like you wouldn't know clinically um, if you only had 30% left, which is both scary and somewhat reassuring. Well, right. Okay. So that that tells us that our kidneys, for instance, are one, quite resilient, and there's like some redundancy built in. There's quite a bit of extra function there. Yep. With the kidneys, of, of which, as we've been saying, there are two, uh, is, is there a good evolutionary reason that there are two? 
Probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. A lot of it is is probably symmetry. Um, it is one way to have extra redundancy. Um, but it, I don't know what exactly caused, you know, two kidney versus one liver. Yeah. Um, other than where they are on the sides. Yeah. Okay. So the, the urine samples that you get, um, tell me some of the, some of how it would look if it is an an abnormal sample versus like a normal sample. Like, are you looking at it under a microscope? Yep, that's another really important part. So a, a standard urinalysis, we have several components. One thing we're looking at is how concentrated it is, which is really a measure of how much water is in there relative to other substances. Another part of that is gonna be there's kind of a dipstick. Um, so there's a, a, a little strip with lots of little color pads on it and urine gets put on each of those and they tell you about individual components of the urine. So one of those tells you about glucose and another would tell you about ketones and another would tell you about protein and things like that. Um, and then the third component is we do take some of that sample and we look at it under the microscope. And there we're looking for, are there red blood cells or white blood cells or bacteria or crystals or things called casts, um, different things that can tell us about what might be happening in the urinary tract. Under a microscope, what does healthy urine look like? Anything? Under a microscope, there's going to be a little bit of material there, but fairly small amount. So it's okay to have a couple red blood cells or a couple white blood cells there, but you really shouldn't see a lot. Um, it does depend a little bit on how the urine is processed. So a urine sample that sits for a while will precipitate. It will probably make some crystals. Um, but when we look at it right away, we shouldn't see a lot. Of, we shouldn't see a lot of any of those things I talked about. So it would be pretty blank mm. um, in a in a really good sample. So a urine sample for from a diseased animal might have a, a some substantial quantity of like red blood cells in it? Yeah. Most of the time if we're seeing a lot of red blood cells or white blood cells, that's also, that's usually not coming from the kidney disease or liver disease or those other systemic problems. That would usually be coming from the urinary tract itself. So more we'd be suspicious in that case of something like an infection or a stone or uh, a tumor or something in the in the bladder or urinary tract itself. Okay, that makes sense. The th kinds of things that you would see that would tell you that there is compromised kidney function would be just what, the way that the urine is not like concentrated in the correct way, et that's, cetera? Yep, that's gonna be one of the big ones is the concentration and then comparing that to the blood. Um, yeah. The other one is going to be on that dipstick. Some of those things are going to be affected more by what's happening up in the kidney. So if we're seeing extra glucose, but there's not a high blood glucose, that tells us the kidney is not working or it's been damaged. If we're seeing um, on that dipstick things uh, that acid-base problems or a lot of protein, that also, especially if we're seeing protein, but then our our microscopic evaluation is is showing no cells, we suspect that protein is coming from the kidney. And that's, so that kind of tells us about a specific kind of kidney disease as well. Those little test strips that the urine is sort of uh, saturated with that give you a lot of information, those sounds sound like really crucial tools that you need in order to do this. You really need all three parts of that test. Yeah, if, you're, if we're going to do a urinalysis, we want to look at all those different parts. So we, we try to do the concentration, the strip, and the microscopic eval. Those strips, are those like manufactured medical products that you can buy? Yep, they are. They're, we actually use often the same ones that they would use in people. Oh, um, really? And, and for certain diseases, we might have people actually have strips that they test urine at home. So um, 
for example, some diabetic patients, there are strips that tell you about things like glucose and ketones, and some people will use those to help kind of assess on a regular basis whether there's a lot of glucose or not a lot of glucose and whether they're developing a problem called ketoacidosis, which is a much more serious uh, complication of diabetes. So we have people who will actually take strips like that and, and test their dog's urine regularly at home to make sure they're not developing that kind of a crisis situation. Mm. Now, one of the things that people probably are asking veterinarians regularly when they are being told that an animal might need a blood sample and urine sample is, well, like, why and what's this going to cost and why is it so expensive? But it sounds to me like, one, there are some medical supplies that are kind of involved, and those may not necessarily uh, in and of themselves be cost prohibitive, though I don't know. It sounds like they're doing something akin to magic by telling <laughs> you what this urine is made out of. But the other thing is, of course, the interpretation of the results. And, and an expert who knows what he or she is doing looking under a microscope probably at this substance. Yeah, there's a lot of different things that go into it. So your analysis often aren't as expensive as some of the blood tests, um, but there are a lot of different parts to them still. Um, there's a, a lot of, I think some of that is because we don't always value our, our expertise or our time as much as we should. Um, and the, the process of doing your analysis is often a little bit quicker um, and doesn't involve as much laboratory equipment as doing some of the blood tests. Um, but it is very much similar in the sense that there are all these different parts of it to interpret. And when you're doing it with the blood, it, it really should go together in most cases. Well, then that means that you've got these two samples that have been collected. Are they able to be processed um, relatively quickly? I mean, you say the that one can be processed. You said the urine can be looked at a bit more quickly than the blood. Uh, that depends a lot on how we're doing it. So there are in some cases when we're collecting blood samples we or urine samples, we want to make sure that those are going to an outside laboratory that handles a lot of samples and has a lot of um, quality control and is going to be very same from day to day. Um, and sometimes we want answers really fast. And so many clinics have the ability to run some blood tests or urine samples immediately when they need to, if they want a very fast answer. For something like a wellness exam or just a check where we're just trying to get information but we don't have a sick patient, we might actually choose to send those samples to an outside laboratory that can get a little bit – they can run slightly bigger lists on the of uh, values on those tests and, and there's a bit more uh, consistent quality control and, and technicians who's, who are, whose job it is pretty much just to run those samples. Okay. Now that – makes a little bit of sense to me because it seems like if you have an otherwise well animal, then, you know, you don't need any specific results like right away. Right. Uh, and But if you do have a sick animal, you probably already kind of as a veterinarian maybe have some suspicions about what some of these problems are, in which case you can focus more of your attention on looking for the markers in the urine or blood samples that might point you to a confirmation of your suspicion. Right. Yeah. So the sicker they are, often the faster we're going to want that information. And definitely there are certain diseases. So when we're talking about kidneys, there's a big spectrum of disease from mild disease that we just need to know about and you know think about some diet changes or medications to really 
critically ill patients who need to be hospitalized and on IV fluids and things like that. And those patients, we can't wait a day to find that out. We need to know right away. So we'll run blood tests and urine tests that we can do right there to figure out if they need to be in the hospital. Well, when we come back, Dr. Specht, I'd like to talk about what some of those diseases might be, because as you say, they can be critically dire. I mean, they could be animals that are are quite profoundly sick and would therefore need to have a prompt attention. So I want to remind everyone that you're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. And I promised uh, my colleague Sue that I would read this announcement, and it's totally appropriate for the program today. And it goes like this. The Alachua County Animal Services is holding an emergency adopt-a-thon this Saturday, March 7th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Camp McConnell, 210 Southeast 134th Avenue in Micanopy. This event is hosted by Shelter Medicine Veterinary Students with the University of Florida Student Chapter of the Association of Shelter Veterinarian. Adopter Adoption fees are waived during this event, and all adopters will receive a goodie bag. All adoptable dogs are examined, vaccinated, spayed, or neutered, and microchipped, and adopters must be 18 years or older and show identification with proof of current residence and proof of current rabies vaccination and county license for pets at home. For more information, you can contact Alachua County Animal Services at 352-264-6870. Again, that number is 352-264-6870. And the Adopt-a-thon is Saturday. That's tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Camp McConnell in Micanopy. Okay, you're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, more with Andrew Speck from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm Dana Hill. Stay tuned. Hi, welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. So glad you've tuned in on this Friday, March 6th, when my guest is Dr. Andrew Speck from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. We're talking today about what veterinarians can determine from urine samples that they collect from our pets, what kind of diseases can be diagnosed in conjunction with blood samples, and what can be learned to help keep our pets safe and healthy. So, Dr. Speck, when we left off, you had begun to mention some of the myriad problems that a urine sample in conjunction with a blood sample might clue you into on a spectrum from like mild to actually quite serious. Right. Yeah. There's a a pretty wide spectrum of things we're looking for. So some of it is just minor clues and some of it is serious illness. What would be some of the more minor things that could be handled probably with just some moderate changes to lifestyle? So some earlier, mo- well, lifestyle changes probably won't uh, won't help us with a lot of the things we'd find in urine because by the time we're finding those changes, they are a little more advanced. But we mentioned, you know, kidney disease that, e- you know, you don't see outward signs of that for quite a while. And so Earlier mild kidney disease can often be managed by just encouraging our pets to drink more water, by modifying their diet a little bit to avoid high phosphorus or or certain things like that. So that from that standpoint, there are things we can manage. Um, Some problems are also just more chronic. So if a patient has a stone in their bladder, 
we obviously want to deal with that, but it may not be it might not be a crisis situation in some cases. And so we might, with certain kinds of stones, if we find the right kind of crystal, we might be able to make that stone dissolve with us with a specific diet. Whereas if we found a different kind of crystal, we'd be much more suspicious that we were going to need surgery or laser or some more invasive technique. Before we go on too far, can you just describe a little bit, because we have talked about stones on this program before, but it's been a while and it might be worth sort of revisiting kind of the, there's a couple different kinds of stones that animals can experience. Yeah, there's several different kinds. Most of them are just going to be, when you think about stones, a lot of people think back I think you can kind of think back to middle school or high school chemistry labs where you put a bunch of salt or some material into a beaker and, um, you know, then cool it down and all of a sudden stuff precipitates. And at its most basic, urinary stones are kind of like that. They're precipitated minerals. And they're depending on the mineral composition, sometimes you can then re-dissolve those minerals. And sometimes once they bind, that's pretty much it. And, and then they're there until we get them out somehow. I see. And there are, though, some that with some kind of therapeutic diet can be made to become small enough that they don't adversely affect the animal. Yeah. In particular, there's, there's one time people might have had pets with these. They're called struvite stones or magnesium ammonium phosphate stones. Those are kind of our classic dissolvable stone. Those often form in the presence of infection. So when there's an infection there, it changes the pH that can lead to, and it changes the mineral composition, that can lead to precipitation. If we get rid of that infection and we reduce the amount of those minerals, those stones can actually go away completely in some cases. Okay. Um, what else can uh, urine and blood samples sort of clue you into? What other diseases, maybe as we move towards the bit more severe? Yeah. When we're talking about the severe ones, some of those are going to be the, instead of the kind of mild early kidney diseases, we might be talking about more acute insults to the kidney. So the umbrella term would be something called acute kidney injury. Um, that can encompass a lot of different diseases, ranging from infections to toxic exposures, things like that. And, and so then the urine can't necessarily tell the difference between the acute and chronic. But when we look at everything together with the blood and urine, we get some clues about whether this is a new process or an old process and just how the patient is doing. And if we think this is a new acute insult, we have much more chance to reverse some of those changes than we would if it was a chronic uh, problem that had been going on for a long time. And so we need to take action quicker. They also are often are sicker. So those are the patients that we might want to get additional testing for toxins or infectious disease or get into the hospital for care. Okay. So that's not something that a person who's coming in with an animal is going to be completely ignorant of. They're going to at least suspect that there's a problem. If they have, yeah, if they're that severely affected, they probably have a, they're probably coming in because their patient is not feeling well. They're, I mean, how quickly might such a problem have come on? It can happen very fast. So especially with certain infections or toxins, they can go from very essentially healthy to very sick in a, in a day or two. Wow. Yeah, okay. And so that really points to the urgency involved in really examining some of the samples that you collect. Because if they've gone from feeling all right to not feeling well at all in a matter of a day or two, then you don't really have a lot of time to spare waiting for a distant lab to check a sample. Right. Those are the ones we'd want to test right away and start uh, working to try to to treat, even while we were waiting for some other samples in, in those cases. Um, in particular, again, certain infections or toxins, 
your opportunity to reverse some of that damage is right when you find that they're getting sick. That's your best chance to reverse some of that. I mean, without getting too too deep into something more complicated, like how might you reverse some of this damage that's already happened? So one of the things is that there is a bit of a spiral that they can get into. So as the kidney is damaged, patients often feel sick and they may not drink as much. And if they get dehydrated, that's going to make everything about kidney disease worse. And then they're going to feel worse and then still not drink or eat. And so one of the big things we can do sounds really simple, but it's not so much treating the disease as buying time. We're, we're going to give them a lot of fluids to try to get them back to a rehydrated so that they get good blood pressure and good blood flow to the kidneys and give them time to get over whatever the insult was. In other cases, there might be a much more specific problem. So some dogs can get a, a disease called leptospirosis, which is an infectious disease, and we want to start treating that as as fast as we possibly can. Certain toxins, if we know they've gotten into something, there might be antidotes or treatments for that that we can start giving in the very early phases, whereas if we wait several days, um, the actual toxin might no longer be there, and we're just dealing with the residual damage at that point. One of the things that I seem to recall from conversations with one of your colleagues, Richard Hill, from the University of Florida, is that there is a degree of moisture that can be acquired through canned pet food versus like dry kibble, right? That might make wet food a, a better choice maybe for some pets. Would would um, would you recommend people who maybe feel like their animals are needing to drink more, would you also recommend, do veterinarians recommend switching to a, a canned food? First, definitely in some cases. So for these really sick patients, that would never be enough to rehydrate them. I see. But when we're talking about some of the stone uh, patients that might have a tendency to form stones or some cats with a particular kind of inflammation in their bladder um, or just patients with early mild kidney disease, yeah, there's several ways to get them to to have more water. One of those is to look at the moisture content in the diet. So switching to a canned food or just adding water to a dry food. Um, the other thing that I think gets overlooked a lot, and I just mentioned this, is availability. So the example I would use is if I was really thirsty right now, I probably wouldn't get up, leave the studio, go get a drink and come back. Right. I would wait eight minutes yeah. and then do it. Yeah. Um, and cats and dogs are are somewhat similar. So if you're playing with them, they're not necessarily going to go across the house to where their water bowl oh, is. Oh, I see. But if there's a bowl where you are, they might take a, you know, if it's right there, they might take a short break, drink, and come back. Oh, gosh, this, you know, Dr. Peck, this makes so much sense because here's the thing is it works in many different ways. Like, you know, not only, and I should admit that I'm a fairly, like, you know, a, a inertia kind of keeps me sitting in one place for a long time. And if I have to get up and, and go get a drink or go get something, I'm less likely to do it than if it's like right there. So you're saying this is a really good advice that if you have a pet that you know needs to be getting more water, make the water more available yep. where the pet is. Right. And, and, you know, it's because it's easy to kind of fall into that trap of, oh, they have a water bowl. They, yeah. But if they need to be drinking a lot, they probably should have water bowls everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, keeping the water fresh. Uh, also, some of them just have preferences. I used to have a cat who would steal water every time there was a cup on yeah. the table. So mm -hmm. it eventually he eventually had kidney disease. We would just leave 
a glass for yeah. him to steal water no from. Um, some of them like running water. And so mm-hmm. fountains can be a helpful uh, way to get them to drink more in those cases. But availability is really key. I mean, is is hydration really like central to a lot of the different problems for which urine tests are used to diagnose? It is going to be really important for a lot of them. Some of them are it's it's kind of independent of. Yeah. But for sure, when we're talking about the kidney diseases or the stone type diseases uh, or Again, a particular disease cats can get that causes inflammation in their bladder and sometimes causes them to urinate outside the box. A lot, a lot of those might be helped by getting more water. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, what is it, leptospirosis? Yeah, that's a particular kind of infection that causes kidney disease. Is it a bacterial infection? Or? It's a kind of bacteria, yep. Yeah. So the treatment for that, I mean, you might learn from a, a blood and urine test that this is something that is suspected. And what would the treatment for that be? Some sort of antibiotic? It would be an antibiotic, yeah. So if we suspect that, we'd usually first find evidence of kidney disease. And then if it was the right patient or the right history, we would run a second test for that particular disease. That one takes a little while to get results. So so if we're at all suspicious, we're usually going to start the antibiotic treatment for it right away. And then we're going to wait and see what our result tells us. But we don't wait around for it if we think that disease is happening. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the spectrum, as you say, of problems that could really uh, benefit from learning information from a blood slash urine test, uh, it, it as as you say, it's, it's quite wide, right? And there are, are there, I mean, the tests that we do right now are they long established or are there going to be new things on the horizon that can be discerned from blood and urine? There are definitely going to be new things. So a lot, what most of what I've talked about today are, are what we call a urinalysis, and that's a long established test, and it hasn't actually changed a lot over the years. Um, but there are definitely new urine tests that are being uh, developed that tell us more about some kinds of infectious disease that affects the urinary tract, but also the rest of the body. Um, And there's some really interesting new tests that might tell us more about the specific types of kidney disease we're dealing with or the types of protein-losing diseases. So there are definitely new tests coming out that involve the urine um, and and blood as well for kidney disease. And again, these are tests that pretty much would be recommended by any neighborhood veterinarian that these folks listening to this program today would be going to. The urinalysis that we've talked about most, or even urine cultures for infections, those are things that are run by almost every veterinarian there is. Some of these newer tests might be much more specific to certain scenarios, but the the classic urinalysis would be performed by pretty much every veterinarian. So, I mean, the takeaway message here might be that if your veterinarian is is suggesting that your pet ought to have a a urine sample and a blood sample, it probably is for your pet's own good. Yes, there's usually a good reason for that. Well, Dr. Andrew Speck from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me today. I really appreciate it. I had fun. Thank you. I want to say thank you to all of you for listening today and to Sarah Carey and her staff over there at the UF College of Veterinary Medicine for their help with this program. Don't forget, tomorrow, the Adopt-a-thon, Latchua County Animal Services is having one from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Camp McConnell, 210 Southeast 134th Avenue in Micanopy. You can adopt a new friend with no fee associated with it. More information at 352-264-6870. I'm Dana Hill. Join me again next week for another Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye.